are your parents proud of you? The podcast. The podcast. We are your hosts. I am Matthew Schufreiter. And I'm LJ Bullen. And today is double Matthew, double the fun. Coming at you hard and fast with Matthew Lee Erbach. Yes, Matthew is a writer, actor, and filmmaker from Chicago and New York whose work largely focuses on erase histories as well as the impact of technological revolutions on capital, race, spiritual, and democratic movements. He also writes comedy. It's dark. He also loves pudding. If you're wondering if I just wrote that myself, no, I'm not as talented because he wrote that about him. That shows you what kind of talented person we have on today. Oh, you're not going to want to miss it. Right? Matthew also has a big collaboration with uh, Rain Wilson. He wrote The Doppelganger at Steppenwolf, which Rain starred in. And they also have a, a new show on Netflix called We Are the Champions, a documentary about extreme races and competitions. So, without further ado, let's get into it with Matthew Lee Erlbach. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Hello, LJ. I'm not Matthew. You're not Matthew. I don't even need a name. I'm just not Matthew. <laughs> That's a name. Thanks so much for doing this. We're really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to see you both. Right. So this past year for you has been quite interesting um, for you. And you know, you've been involved with the Senate and writing these amazing letters to them and uh, being a great activist. Um, for you emotionally, though, how have you changed probably since this pandemic has begun to where we are now? Uh, what's my emotional change? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been it's been weird. You know, the beginning, I'm, I'm a bit of a prepper. So when, in January and February, I'd been following the story and uh, of of, you know, COVID. And so I was like kind of secretly nervous and you know not not hoarding but definitely like buying water and buying soaps and just like something's gonna happen yeah okay Me yeah too. thank you yep. yeah so you know it's it's uh it's so I was doing that and then when it hit I got this like this image in my head that it was like the mid 1800s and you would hear like people wailing, you know, just like, you know, yellow fever would, you know, just gripped everyone and you'd hear like wailing in other rooms in the building. And I was like, Oh my God, that's going to happen here. Cause I start, then we started seeing the media here and I'm like, I'm asthmatic. And that made me really nervous. I'm like, I could get it. And so I was just like really nervous. And so I just had this image in my head that like everyone in our building would get it. We'd hear people in the building next to us be wailing. Like I went to the worst place. We'd see bodies in the streets. I'm also writing about the yellow fever um, in 1867 in Memphis. So like that really stuck. Picked me. a good anyway, time. I picked a real, yeah. So anyway, you just want to make sure that your fears were historically accurate. Thank you. Yes, I dramaturged my experience. Thank you. So, you know, throughout the pandemic, I, I, I was definitely met with some of that. It was very sad. Um, it's been a time of, of despair and fear and great, great, great hope. I have never felt more hopeful as, as kind of strange as that might sound. So I'm in a place of uh, rejuvenation and um, fury still, of course. I mean, um, I see the, the project of human society getting like it's collapsing and we have an insurgent 
um, Republican Party trying to destroy our democracy, so I'm angry, but I also feel hopeful because we have been awakened um, as, a, as a planet, and I'm really, I think that's fucking awesome. So, I I, so yeah, I, I kind of answered your question. <laughs> that's totally fine. And, you know, this, this be an arts hero, um, how did you get started with this? So it started, uh, you know, before I jumped on board, uh, uh, Carson Elrod, um, who started the Fair Wage on Stage campaign in New York that ended up gaining lots of traction everywhere and inspired lots of people for economic justice for actors. Him, uh, Jenny Grace Macholm and Brooke Ishibashi had started this um, Be an Arts Hero and really kind of taking this dense economic data about the arts and culture economy and giving it life and teaching people that, you know, in Illinois, we have a $30 billion arts and culture economy. In California, over $200 billion. In Alaska, $1.7 billion, et cetera. And, you know, teaching people that, uh, forcing our legislators to pay attention and say, you can't leave us out of um, the um, legislative process that we need to be made an economic and legislative priority. And so they'd been going for a little bit, a few weeks or, or something. And I had been working on this letter, this open letter to the U S Senate and Brooke called me and she's like, Hey, I'm doing this thing. We're thinking of writing a letter. And I'm like, I'm already working on a letter. So we just kind of Voltron it up and joined forces. And the next thing, you know, this letter, you know, is signed by 16,000 people, um, from everyone from the executive director of the Met to, um, you know, celebrities, Tony, Oscar, Grammy, uh, Pulitzer uh, winners to rank and file arts and culture workers like us here and, and across the country. I mean, from puppeteers to arts administrators to Broadway workers to music workers. And so to me, this was proof. It was a key that I could use to say, first of all, we are lacking a voice. We're five, we're th now, according to the Bureau of, Econo uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, we're 5.2 million arts and culture workers driving $919 billion across 435 congressional districts through over 675,000 businesses across the country. We are more than agriculture and mining put together. Just think about that, agriculture and mining. And here we are as a major economic driver, and we don't have representation in our government. There is a department in Secretary of Agriculture. There is a department in Secretary of Energy and Labor. And there is no department in Secretary of Arts and Culture. That is unconscionable. We are a labor force that has been left out of the economic and legislative conversation. So that letter said to me, there is a desire to have um, representation in our government. And so I built a lobbying team and a policy team to say, hey, we're going to get these documents together. We're going to make a state document for each state. We're going to, I'm going to cold call and cold email Senate offices, get meetings with chiefs of staff, legislative directors, whomever in Illinois, here's the economic impact. Here's the institutions. Here's how many jobs over 224,000 jobs in Illinois, $30 billion. This is an economy that you're about to lose. If you don't put an economic floor underneath it, what can we do together? So we're going to go state by state. We're going to meet with all 100 senators. We're going to meet with as many congressional reps as we can We meet with state legislators. And so that was the process. And um, so we built Be an Arts Hero um, into this lobbying organization that is uh, now becoming a 501c4 and um, is becoming something called Arts Workers United. And um, we're going to organize all 5.2 million arts and culture workers across this country and make sure that we have 
um, representation. By the way, interrupt me at any time because I <laughs> monologue at you. I'm well, so oh, sorry. I oh, did love you. how you made the comparison between um, the bailout that they gave to the airline industry. Uh, I thought that was really, really good. Like, you know, you can't argue that. That's fact. You know what I mean? And here are the facts. And like, that's the way to get shit done in that world where, you know, lobbying is everything and money is power. Yeah. Uh, and I thought and, that was a really good, like irrefutable moment. Well, th- thank you. I mean, and and I want to be clear that, you know, we're not saying we're better than airlines. We're saying, look at what our colleagues in the airline industry was able to achieve. They're a labor force that was able to receive, you know, $50 billion per their $1 trillion in generated revenue. That's 5%. We're asking for 5% as well. $43.85 billion at the time, because we the math was a little different. We have new numbers in now. We're asking for 5% as well. So, you know, yes, exactly. Numbers don't lie. Facts don't lie. And when you talk about the arts and culture economy through an economic lens, we're talking about jobs. They're, these are just jobs that happen to be in a field that people, that the narrative has been written for us. You know, ironically, arts and culture has a story problem in our government. It's very ironic. And so by changing the narrative and saying, taking the art out of partisan, calling it what it is, these are American jobs, these are businesses, go to Senator Marshall Blackburn and say, you have $46 billion, it's about to get wiped out. What is it? Is it gas, coal? No, it's arts and culture, it's music, it's Memphis and Nashville, and you don't want to lose that. That's the pride and joy of Tennessee. So bipartisan argument to be made here. And so when we talk about the NEA, which is this big political football all the time, the NEA is not an arts agency. The NEA is an economic agency that specializes in creative industry. Mm -hmm. So if we can reframe the narrative to say NEA, NEH, National Dominant Humanities, IMLS, Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. These are economic agencies that know their constituencies. If we fund them, they're going to fund the state, local, regional arts agencies, get money to independent contractors, and grow our economy. We're a jobs multiplier at 4.16%, nearly double that of the national economy writ large. We're a big bet wherever we go, and we're a safe bet. I'm honestly like, I'm a little tickled for the implications of this moving forward out of COVID times. Like it sucks that it took something like this to bring us to that point, but like the idea of finally killing the narrative of the starving artist and like glorifying our economic hardship um, and, and having real representation like that for me, like that's even like more exciting than like the immediate goal of like getting funding um, and stopping the bleeding and allowing arts to continue. But like, then if we do have this national organization, then how can that even go further once we've gotten there? So I'm just, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited too. I mean, this is, this is our moment to find common cause with other industries and geographies, you know, making sure that in our rural, urban, suburban, and exurban communities that Native uh, First Nations museums and uh, glass blowing hot shops and theaters and dance companies and cultural spaces that we find common ground with each other. Whatever you're doing, if you're doing something that is um, has creative output, that is labor. And the idea, by the way, what you're saying about being a starving artist, accepting that narrative is accepting 
poverty wages. It is accepting that we are less than and that what we do is extracurricular and luxury and other, you know, this idea that, you know, the arts are like coastal elites. Get the fuck out of here with that. Most of us are middle or lower class because we, we, tra- we, the, the, we traffic in exposure and that's the payment. Oh, you're going to get exposure. I don't need exposure. Exposure is not going to keep the lights on and put food on my table. Pay me. Pay yeah. me what I'm worth. Pay me for my labor. A lot of us go to grad school for this. I didn't go to grad school, but that is another ticket to get through the gate of this very uh, os- these ossified structures um, in the nonprofit sector. We have to break through those. So it's about pay equity and and pay and 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 equity, diversity, inclusion, you know, are very important in rewriting the social contracts of our industry and and the whole country and the world. Partly how you could do that is by pay, pay people. And that's what our unions are for. And our unions need work also. Matthew, go ahead. I'm yelling now. As someone who, yeah, yeah, who who cares? (laughs) Project, who cares? Uh, You know, as someone who just finished college last year, it feels like this is the younger generation and the younger artists being even more starving and hungrier than ever. I always feel like listening to you and learning more about this, there's this weird generation gap between the older artists who probably are accustomed to where they are and are okay with that and not, not willing to accept this younger voice who has this different opinion kind of like different kinds of theater as well. Um, is this more than just an artist's problem? I feel this is all, you think this is more used for the next generation of artists who are coming? Um, meaning that the things that we're talking about, that it is up to the next generation of, of artists even, and arts workers. To also help it even make it stronger for, than it is now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there is a huge generation gap. And, you know, we have to remember that the wages have have stagnated while the cost of living has gone up. And at the time, many older artists, you know, also, it's a lot of white male artists. So, you know, there is a there's there's again, we have to rewrite these social contracts together and rebuild these institutions together. And also, we have to look at what is working and what is not working with 501c3 uh, nonprofits? Like, is, is that the best model? Should we be changing that model? Um, is that sustainable? Because it, it, is, it, it doesn't seem like it's a sustainable business model and, and really a sustainable cultural model. So I think we need to look at all of this comprehensively and go, what we're doing, yes, it is a social utility and we need to treat it as such, um, very much. We need to protect our arts and culture institutions. And the next generation has to come in with their own ideas on what these things look like. But also this is commerce. And we have to talk about that because we're talking about labor. And so we, we need all ideas at the table right now and, and to rebuild the ecosystem because it is, it is dysfunctional. What has the response been like thus far? And has it changed over time? The response to this work? To this, yeah, to this letter to the Senate. Has anyone even responded to you yet? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of many campaigns. You know, we worked with the Dramatists Guild and did a whole letter campaign with um, 
our nation's uh, playwrights, librettists, and uh, composers, and, and dramatists through the Dramatist Guild. We had um, a national campaign with editorial cartoonists. We had a another campaign, um, you know, the American uh, circus workers just formed their own organization. Um, the response has been, you know, in, in some ways we've disrupted the arts advocacy space. And when we came in, people, some people were like, oh my God, th you, the way you're doing this is so different and thank you for being here. And then some people were like, what the hell are you doing here? This is how we do things. Yeah. The way things have been done haven't been working. And I don't say that to be a jerk. I just say that as fact. And the reason why it's fact is because people like you and me aren't a part of those efforts. The mixed income earners, the 1099 contract workers, the rank and file don't know about these organizations. These organizations aren't reaching out to us. We are a 5.2 million strong labor force that has not been tapped writ large as a political block. Mm -hmm. Who else would you want than fucking artists and arts workers to be part of a political block pushing the narrative and to writing and writing their legislators? Our institutions create, anchor, and sustain these highly interdependent local commercial ecosystems that drive retail, restaurants, hospitality, tourism, transportation. We need to be central to economic planning in every community that we're in because we spread sunshine and happiness. So I think that, and money, and I think that what the, the point is, what, what we found now is we're, we're one of many organizations that have come up during this time. NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, which ran a $16 billion football into the end zone through Save Our Stages. Now, Save Our Stages and the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant has um, been challenging for a lot of people, and that's a, another conversation. Um, but it's overall like incredible that that happened and Neva has organized the nation they have state captains I mean but they're they're doing incredible work um affect change there's so many other organizations out there doing great work right now so I think that everyone sees that we needed to get rocked in order to uh, come together in a new way and build different coalitions and build them differently and write policy I mean the, the 21st century the 21st Century Federal Writers Project Act was just introduced by Ted Lieu and Rep. Uh, uh, Leisure Fernandez, um, um, $60 million to writers. I mean, that's, that's a standalone bill. That's historic. So there's a lot of this stuff. There's the Calmer Act. There's obviously the Dawn Act, which came from us, Defend Arts Workers Now. Um, there's a uh, place, there's a lot of different policy proposals out there. So the response has been good. It's the more the merrier we need, you know, we need to, we need to lift as we climb. And I think that's what we see happening right now. By the way, if I slur my speech and just keep rambling, I've been in a writer's room all day and my brain is fried. So I'm so sorry. Please interrupt me at any time. I will take the cue. I for one very much enjoy your rambling. I, it's I'm not, super my style. I'm so. not complaining all right. at all. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of, uh, let's talk about young Matthew, not me, you. So you grew up in Rogers Park in Chicago. Um, you know, you worked in the alley and did all kinds of weird customer service jobs. How do you know that? I did my research. Wow. Uh, so what, what were you like as a child? Um, as chatty as I am now, I was... <laughs> I was uh, joking to the writer's room. I don't know how we got on this topic. I was um, almost kidnapped when I was a kid. And yeah, anyways, long story short, it, it's, a, it's a funny story. 
But anyways, long story short, my mom joked to me later on um, that they would have returned me because I'm so talkative. So (laughs) my mom said the same thing about my sister. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I was a talkative kid. I was very, um, you know, I was just a real vivacious only child, I guess. Um, Yeah. But no one thinks I'm an only child. And then I tell them and they're like, oh, I don't really see it. Um, And then some people do see it and that makes me sad <laughs> and then the mood just down. i would think all they would need to do is see a family photo and they'd see it pretty clear they'd see it pretty clear they'd see <laughs> a kid who dresses in ripped jeans and flannels just like i do today and they'd be like i'll go to old navy next time to get that outfit yeah that's right exactly so what did your parents do were they involved in the arts at all as well yeah um my mom is uh, an author. She wrote over 50 books, uh, children's books, started writing young adult romance novels. And she is a public school teacher um, uh, in Chicago, which I think is inferred when I said Chicago public school teacher. Again, long day. <laughs> um, and both my parents are creative. I grew up listening to a lot of music in the house. There's a lot of music, a lot of um, rock, a lot of Broadway. My aunt is an artist. I later in life um, learned that I have a lot of artists in the family, um, a famous sculptor and famous painter, Martha and Walter Erlebacher. That's the original spelling of the last name. It changed at Ellis Island for some of us. Um, there's a Baroque composer from Germany, like generations ago. His name was, I think, Heinrich Erlebacher. Anyways, a lot of artists in the Heinrich. family. Heinrich, yeah. Sehr gut. Sprechen Sie Deutsch ein bisschen? Nein? Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Only no. little tiny phrases at parties. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll get you speaking German. It's a very popular language these days. I've sung in German. It's, it's very uh, satisfying, and there's a lot of spit. Involved. there's a lot of there's a lot of spit involved in german <laughs> that's true wait did you study classical voice um i studied musical theater at ithaca so we had to do all okay so nice. we did a lot of like arias and bits from operettas and things like that right on very cool yeah we didn't do that at columbia college chicago so. <laughs> we, we just did hey if you're a color be that color and roll on the ground and then see what happens Hey, I had a director who directed entirely in color notes and it totally worked for me. No. It was very confusing for most people, but you, for I, some reason we got each other. <laughs> Are you writing this down, Matthew? I think if you need some ideas, I think we're providing some for you. You know, I, I mean, it was purple and I want it to be a little bit more blue. Yeah, this conversation is feeling nicely plaid. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't think I could ask for anything more. <laughs> so so you got so is it true like one of the first plays or like one of the shows that really got you inspired to become an artist was, was something with Fiona Shaw right yeah so Med- what show was that and how did that inspire you it was Medea uh Fiona Shaw um yeah. <laughs> yeah it was intense I was uh in school in Boston at the time and it was touring through I think from Ireland and um I didn't know who Fiona Shaw was at the time, um, but I knew I really liked Medea and I liked the, the key art that I saw and everyone was like, you got to see this. Or, or t- one of the art teachers at the time would s- said, you have to see this. This is, you know, a very once in a lifetime opportunity to see Fiona Shaw do this role. And it's one of the greatest stage performances I've ever seen. She's one of our 
just greatest actors. I think she's incredible. And there's this one moment uh, in the scene where she's running around with her just limp, bloody kids. And there's this stark white light and the siren blaring and blood streaking. And when the moment ended, everyone is at the edge of their seat breathing, just like our you could hear the gasps and the heartbeats in the audience. I mean, it was, it, it was otherworldly. And uh, I was like, I want to do that. Mm. That is fucking amazing. It's so gripping. And like, just to, to, to have that, that emotional effect on a whole room of people at the same time. Um, if you can use that force for good, like, do it. And so that's, uh, that was, that was really inspiring. I was gonna say, I, I, nothing gets me excited as an artist than when an audience is watching you and you made an impact on them and because maybe it's just me as a, as a person, but like, it is very hard for me to speak out in front of public groups. And then when I am on stage and as a character, whether it's good, evil, whatever, when they're watching you and you hear nothing but like maybe except a person coughing because they're all, our eyes are on you that feels really cool. And one, and so for me, that's kind of how I got started is I wanted to make an impact on an audience, you know? Yeah. It really kind of like drives home how important it is, the stories that we tell and how we tell them and who's telling them and whose stories are getting told. Like that, those kind of moments for me, I think back on those things. And then I think about like, I don't know, like like, everybody has like one moment where like there's a piece of art and they see it and they're, and they're like that art, that, that writer, they know me, that writer, they, they, that was my, that was me. That was my life. I had this moment and you know, there's some connection there. That's just like so specific that you would never think that another human being in the entire world ever had that one feeling that you had and then you see it out there and it's like proof we're not alone and proof that we're all the same and it's just ah yeah I mean that's why we need diversity in our storytelling and in who gets to who gets the platforms to express their experiences whether it's in visual art or you know theater tv film whatever it is that's right I mean we're such a we're a very um we're a social species that is handing down this existential crisis generation to generation to generation. The fact that we have all these religions, which is storytelling, all these narratives trying to define our existence is, you know, is our connective tissue, our story and the expression of this existential crisis is the thing that connects us. And we need to hear it from as many different people as possible. So we know that we're not alone. So we can make meaning of this. I mean, we're basically walking fertilizer. You know, I don't mean to be so dark about it but that's the truth you know so um but it's a miracle what a miracle I can get into a whole thing about the miracle of life without without getting you know religious about it although I do think it's religious too anyway yeah we're not alone. I think the title of this episode should be what a miracle to be walking fertilizer I love that title my memoir I'm writing it down um so is it also too like uh one of the other inspirations for you was second city because that proves that like you can laugh too at the same time did you perform it all with second city no i took classes there and um i mean that was 
there were like two really two big mythologies of import in Chicago um, when I was growing up, which was Second City and Steppenwolf. And those were the two institutions that really defined two big spaces in Chicago and for the country. And if you're a young performing artist and you're an actor and you're into comedy, like those are two of the churches you must attend. And so I took classes at Second City and I loved it. And um, when I ended up coming out to New York after I graduated um, from college, I had a sociopolitical sketch show called Happy Sunshine Kung Fu Flower, which was awesome. And, uh, but I realized that I, that wasn't my scene, um, that I, the, the theater was more my scene. And I mean, like, I liked doing both. I liked both scenes, but I think the conversations that I wanted to have were more appropriate in the theater um, and the, and the kind of questions I was asking. Um, and then I realized, oh, I can actually do both things in this space. And, you know, you realize, oh, you can kind of do it all and do it in your own way. But um, I, I definitely felt at the time I had to choose a camp um, to focus my efforts. Was I writing plays or was I going to be writing sketch comedy and like doing stand up? And I chose plays. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, and how did your parents feel when you said, you know what? I think I want to do this art as a living. Super supportive. I mean, I was going to be an opera singer. I, I went to school for opera and that's what I wanted to do. I had this voice that was, you know, beyond my years that I needed to catch up to and figure out how to wield this thing. And I, uh, you know, went to school for voice and then for musical theater. And I um, was very supported by my parents. They did want me to have a backup and I chose writing. Um, and that was a conversation. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> like backup. an actual backup. Real backup. Right? Real backup. <laughs> yeah. And that was my real backup. And that's what I do now. But uh, yeah, but they were very supportive. Oh, I feel like in every episode that I've had uh, with the guests, they usually go, when I ask them that question, they go, they're, they're supportive, but they always ask me, so what's plan B or what's the backup? Like I literally just had a conversation with my folks a couple of days ago at, as we're ending or hopefully ending this pandemic. And I, and I told them, I, uh, tomorrow I'm going to spend doing three auditions. And they're like, great. How's the job search coming there, Matt? I'm like, oh, great, 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 good. I just got they're paid. They're called auditions. They're called auditions. You get <laughs> money from That's them. the job search. Those right. are interviews. Yeah. 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 For me, I, don't, I, I think it's actually okay not to have a plan B as long as you're focused on what you want to do. I don't know what you think. Well, I'm not sure, like, let, let's like divorce ourselves from plan B for a second and that language and replace it with how are you making money? Right. You know, if you're making money as a bartender or server, that's not your plan B. That's how you're making money while you're interviewing for jobs in a profession that you want to be working in full time. I had a skill set that allowed me to kind of uh, fall back on writing and producing at WWE. That was my plan B. And that was a really kind of crazy plan B to be writing for TV wrestling. But like, that's what was paying my bills as I was auditioning and writing plays. And so I developed a skill set that was parallel and in, in tandem to the thing I wanted to be doing. And that ended up being the quote unquote plan B. And all that was, was a, you know, it was a great learning experience, but it was a glorified day job. So, you know, there isn't, 
here's the other thing too. There is no shame in having a passion for more than one thing and realizing that one of the things you have a passion for isn't the thing that you want to pursue in your life. And I think there's this thing in our industry that, oh, because it's such a competitive industry and we have such scarcity mentality and like success looks like this thing that if you stop doing one thing, you've somehow failed. You have not failed. No one has failed. If they're choosing another thing they're passionate about, that is a very meaningful life. And so I think we need to also give ourselves the space and permission to change, to pivot, to evolve, and to allow, um, to allow ourselves to grow. So yeah, that. I think it's good to to be of the mind. I don't know. I feel like this this is a side side journey for a moment, but like um I love uh Dan Savage and his podcast and he talks about the same thing with relationships of like just because a relationship ended doesn't mean that it failed. It's like every single relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end at some point. It, that and might be death, but like you know, and I feel like it's the same thing with jobs. I've I've had just dozens of different jobs within our field that aren't necessarily the thing that I wanted to be doing full time, but it's like, you still learn things and anything you learn as a human being is going to make you a better artist. Absolutely. And, you know, we need to dismantle capitalism so it works better for us also. So when we have this conversation, you know, we're talking about government support that, you know, the, the arts and culture sector has the same kind of subsidy I don't know if I said that right, but you know what I mean, that other, that other industries do like farming and like mining, you know, they, these are subsidized industries that we don't have that kind of support. And the other thing about evolving, yeah, relationships evolve. What you started as in a relationship seven or eight years later is going to change because you're changing your needs are going to change. And the question in that partnership is, do we want to do this change together? You know, we want different things. Do we want to are, do we want to grow together or apart? And there, again, to your point, there's no shame in that either. Friendships, romantic relationships, like we, we cannot be expected to be one thing for our whole lives. That is so ridiculous and boring. It's so boring. Like, come on. We got into this lifestyle because we were alternative. <laughs> How do we yeah. all get into the same pigeonhole? Yeah, exactly. We, we got into this because we had questions and like, you know, we're curious. Curiosity drives us. Well, speaking of curious, I'm kind of curious for you as a playwright. Good segue. See, there's one thing I know how to do is my research and my segues. Um, what kind of plays interest you and how would you, and how would you define your plays? Um, I, I don't know what kind of plays interest me. I mean, I like plays that are expanding my my emotional space, my existential space, my spiritual space, my political space. I like being challenged. I don't need to go to the theater and be told what I already know. I already know it. Um, I, I want to be challenged. I want to be, um, I want to be met and like taken on a ride. Uh, You know, whether it's a kitchen sink drama with fucking gorgeous honest, truthful acting or something more, um, you know, with, with theatrical vocabulary that I haven't seen before, you know, what are you, 
what are you what are you working on as an artist that is inviting me into that space to engage in like I, I want that intercourse it's so important um and I want to see excellence I want to see your excellence that's why I'm coming I want to see you at your best so it could be anything I mean it, you know Fiona Shaw was reading the phone book but she was doing it you know at the highest level I'd be like this is fucking awesome uh you know, and how I define my work is, you know, I go, my genres go from, you know, kitchen sink political thriller to political farce to sci-fi. I mean, I kind of go wherever my questions need to get answered and the story tells me what it needs to be. You, as you were telling me about Fiona Shaw, I, I, there's like random celebrities I would want to just do random things. Like, Francis McDormand reading off what she got at the grocery store. Like, done. sign me up. Or Alan Alda teaching me how to drive. Come on. Like, stuff like that I would pay <laughs> just to see. And I'm going to go home and sleep happy now just thinking about that. I want to... Even reading your uh, oven manual. I mean, I was just going to say, Dave Chappelle reading pharmaceutical ingredients. Just give that <laughs> to me. Right? You love it. You pay for it. <laughs> That's awesome. I absolutely would. Right? You should call him and let him know. I'll give him a call. Yeah. Oh, you, you and Dave. Dave, right? I got a pitch for you. Hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna love it. Uh, <laughs> I like your old timey newspaper voice. I know. Well, and and this. What's yeah. this? Oh yeah. Come on. This is this is how you hold like an Xbox controller now, right? Exactly. Right. I don't know. I don't play games. Uh, so let's let's there. So obviously, a lot of people are gonna be known for your work because you did one of the work you did was the doppelganger at Steppenwolf a couple of years ago with Rain Wilson. And I like how you and Rain have like this continued collaboration uh, app since that. You, you said you're developing a movie with them. You did, you just released a- uh, are, are you surveilling me? Do you have a PI, a Pinkerton agent? Like, why do you know these things? These aren't things that like are- uh, Yeah, in the documentary. Well, we are the champions, which I, I watched oh the God. first episodes and they're, and they're good. Um, how, how did you get Rain, first of all, to do it because i now this tell me this is true originally he didn't want to go to chicago in the cold weather be away from his family for a couple months but then he was just so uh, all on edge with your script that he couldn't say no how did you convince him or was it even you who can like ask him if he wanted to do it um well it was uh steppenwolf who reached out with the with the offer and we met over zoom and uh, with the director, Tina Landau, and talked through the play and he asked questions and I addressed them. And I think he just wanted to know, like, am I, you know, like, who am I getting in bed with here? Like, wh what's the, what's going on? And, um, you know, answering those questions, I think he realized that this was a good situation. And I think that's all it took. And, you know, he was worked on his contract he'd missed some performances so he could be with his family and his kid which I really appreciated and made me want to work with him even more that that's something that was important to him and just like where he was coming from you know on every level I'm just like I really want to work with this person and luckily it worked out and then uh he reached out to me about we are the champions which is awesome and now um and we're working on a, a feature together right now so it's just a. Uh, you know, a relationship that keeps uh, evolving and growing, which is awesome. How did you, how did you get started with the doppelganger? I was reading about conflict minerals and, um, as one does. Uh, 
as one does. Yeah, I'm a real fun person invite at a party. Uh, <laughs> and I was reading about this and like, this would be a great play, but it would be really dense to do it just as if someone spilled something. Is that what happened? Yep. What'd and you spill? Was, uh, I spilled seltzer water. Sparkling water, luckily. Oh, but that's it okay. Was full, unluckily. It was full, unluckily. LJ so, is cleaning this up for the we've listener. Got, we've, we've, we've got ghost LJ now. Yep. LJ, thank you for cleaning that up. Well, it's their house. So <laughs> have, he yeah. wouldn't have known where to start. Nope. Um, yeah, so I was writing about, um, I was reading about it and wanted to write about it and thought, you know, the kind of actors, the people involved in this world are absurd. And so um, let's lean into the absurdity of this, of a lot of the stories I was reading and the people I was reading about and lean into that and make that the way in. And also like, you know, it's the sausage in a blanket or sausage in a pancake, pig in a blanket. Pig in a blanket. Uh, but yeah, you know, sausage how do we... Pancake. Whatever that is. Uh you know, how do we, how do we talk about this in a way that people are like, yeah, I'm going to go see a play about conflict resources in in the Central African Republic. Uh, it's a drama. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to go to that. And I'm interested in the subject. <laughs> so you make it a farce and a tragic farce and you treat the subject and the protagonists with integrity while punching up at the power structures that's a really interesting recipe. And as a writer, as an artist, what a great challenge to approach that. How do I do this? Because I'm going to step on a lot of third rails here. And I have a global, I'm representing a global cast, like, and I'm a white guy. Um, what is the, how do I do this in, in the right, the most responsible way? And I really was excited for that challenge. Awesome. And the response was universal and it was well-received and yeah. they made, it was sold out pretty much the, the entire run. So it, I guess it worked out. It worked out. It was awesome. Question is yeah. now that you've started this sort of like working relationship with Mr. Wilson um, on this feature, if you're allowed to talk about it at all, is this something that you wrote specifically like for him? Like, do you find yourself doing that as a writer now is sort of like, I have this great relationship. I have this really awesome, you know, actor voice to work with. Did you sort of write for him, write around him, or you just had a story to tell that happened to be a good fit? Well, it's funny. I sent him a pilot of mine um, that we were packaging up and in reading that, he came to me with some ideas that he had and wanted to know if I wanted to work with him on a project. Um, same thing with We Are the Champions. I, um, he reached out to me at random saying, we need someone for this. Do you want to do it? And then with the, the feature, he said, I have some ideas. Uh, you know, I loved the script. You know, we, we wanted to work on that together and him be a part of that. He's like, I have some ideas. Upon reading this, I feel like you'd be interested in some of these ideas I've been knocking around. And so we talked about, I'm like, this is the one I really like. And so we started working on that together, but to your point. Yeah. I mean, I work, you know, it's, it's like working with the, you know, ensemble at Steppenwolf, you know, Audrey and, and James are two people that, um, and got in and just, you know, everyone that I worked with, there are people that I want to write for again. And so they're, 
I'm keeping them in mind and keeping other people I work with in mind, whether it's TV or other theater, like I want to work with them again because I know how to write for their voice too. And I want to challenge them as artists. So, you know, yeah, all of that. But with the rain thing, he came to me with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And did you feel challenged? I mean, assume writing plays, you always want to make sure you're being challenged yourself. Um, like, do you, I assume, what, do you work out and meditate every day? And then you just sort of let your head sort of explode from there? I love that you think that I work out every day. That makes me feel really good about myself. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, like, I, I do meditate. I do want to be challenged. Life is too short. I don't want to do something that's not challenging or interesting. Um, or it's going to make a difference. I mean, I look at being a writer as a public service and whether it's, you know, helping to write and shape policy or writing a script, I, I am here to be of service. And if something is not um, achieving those ends, I'm not interested. And that, that doesn't need to be political. It could be, you know, again, spiritual or just pure art, but like I have to know what the thing is, what the conversation is, um, I don't want to waste people's time. They're spending money and 90 minutes or two hours or whatever coming to see the conversation that I want to have. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, I lost my question. Well, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I got inspired by the answer. But, uh, that's okay. Um, so what sort you know, is there a fear now that you have with your plays? I feel maybe it's just me now as an artist spending this last year in lockdown. You know, I've had this fear of like, maybe I don't, I don't feel challenged enough right now because now I'm stuck in my own little heads with my own little emotions of like, maybe I don't have it anymore or I don't feel challenged anymore because I've been in my house all day doing Zoom readings or Zoom scripts. You know, where's the challenge come from? Has that ever happened to you where you think, well, I, don't, I feel like I've done it all at this point, or I made all the points that I wanted to address now in my career. Not even fucking close. I oh. am like, I just have so much that I want to talk about and, and explore and figure out. I don't think I'll ever get to that point. I don't think, I mean, I am, I am overwhelmed by I just, it, no, no, not at all. But, and I, and I, and I, and I onion, right? it's like, yeah, exactly. And it's not just in this medium too. I mean, I'm also a visual artist. So there's like that, there's, you know, projects there too. And like, you know, bettering my skills there. And um, yeah. Do you miss being on the stage? I know you're an actor and you've done opera sometimes. Do you miss being on camera or stage at all? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I also don't, I'm also impatient and don't want to wait for other people to tell me yes and tell me when I can do something. So this allows me to continue that work while I'm doing that. But I definitely, you know, um, put my energy into writing because one, I wanted to get better at it. And when I started, I realized I'm going to have to really, because I didn't go to grad school and, you know, it was like, I have to figure out, I have to figure this out. And I just decided to put all my energy into that because I wanted to understand what it was that I was doing. And then, you know, I do projects that I cast myself in and I, you know, um, in this next year, I'll be, I'll be doing a couple acting projects. Um, one of which is something that I wrote another snot and yeah, I want to, I, I do, I do miss it. I love it. I love it. 
is it fun doing your own like doing in the show because i know you did like a one-man show and you were obviously in it do you like performing your duh but like performing your own <laughs> well fun fact he was in his own show do you like performing your own words or is it or do you feel even more like self-critical when you do something like that yeah is it harder to check out um not necessarily because I spend so much time with the material. So with the solo play, I know it intimately because it's been rewritten and I'm speaking it. And, you know, in with Handbook for an American Revolutionary, which is the solo play, I, you know, was characters from all over the country. And it was, um, I had to turn off my writer brain at a certain point in order to lock the script so I could just be an actor. So like, there's that. Um, that was my biggest like question. Is like, do you just want to keep editing forever? Yeah, of course, but you got to know when to stop. I mean, editing is, you know, it's same thing for visual art too. Like, and, and for making music, like there's this point where you have to know this is what this is. Cause you'll, you're going to, you're going to paint over things or draw over, you're going to overdraw. Like if you're doing, you know, you're going to lose the point of focus. You're going to tangent, like, you know, what is the job of this piece? And knowing that you, that that's what this is in this moment you have to be comfortable with, which is hard. Restraint. Restraint is another skill of the craft for sure. And I, because this is a show about the parents, how have your parents feel about your work thus far? They're uh, great. They're, you know, they're always worried, um, but they're very proud. And uh, yeah, I, I think their, their, their proudest moment probably was doppelganger in Chicago. Um, Cause I was, you know, coming back home and doing such a, um such an awesome awesome play see like for me because when I do like you know I did Eurydice and I was a talking rock and I told my parents hey come to the show I'm gonna be a rock and they're like what that doesn't make sense do you ever get nervous when like you're doing these plays with these huge themes um of how they're gonna react to it um I think they expect that from me and also like they saw me be talking rocks in my life too and so yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, I and I was, you know, you know, off, off Broadway or, you know, off, 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 off Kansas, you know, whatever it was, you know, they'd come support and, you know, that support's really meaningful. Um, if you have parents who are supportive of what you're doing and and that might look like different things too, but them showing up is a really big deal. And, you know, I, I think it's, I think- yeah, that support's really, that support has been like a, has been really important to me for sure. I mean, a hundred, in every way. I transferred schools. I transferred from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign to the Boston Conservatory, which is an exponentially more expensive school. Um, my parents had saved for state school and I applied to 13 schools and I'd gotten scholarships and some were a lot, some were full rides, some were none. And I was like crazy ambitious and I wanted to get out of Illinois and I wanted to go to the best school I possibly could. And I ended up at the University of Illinois and I fucking loved it. And I was so happy that I went to the University of Illinois. And I was like, you know, you, and, and I love Boston Conservatory also. It was a really great school, but ultimately what I got at U of I was, you know, I wanted the thing I transferred back to U of I because I realized I want the academic training. I loved my professors um, I liked being in Illinois and I knew this is the only time in my life where I could be in the middle of a cornfield learning all these things 
and like to enjoy that. And um, my parents were very supportive of that journey. I mean, it didn't come without its fraught moments for sure. Like, Matthew, what the hell are you doing? Like, pick a fucking school. And, you know, they, 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 that, yeah, that, that's, um, I, I would not be here without them, literally, and also in terms of the conversation we're having. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Right. So as we're wrapping up, what, for any of the future, not just the playwrights and the actors, how about just future artists in general, what advice would you give to them? I think the advice I would give is, um, you know, as cliche as it is, it's very true. Uh, stay true to yourself. Find your voice and stay true to yourself and um, be generous and, and, and gracious and graceful with yourself as you figure that out. Um, and also find your people find your people, find your community. You are, no, no one does this alone and um, no one can and no one should. And it's not as fun. That's awesome. I'll cheers to that. Right. Cheers to that. Speaking. It's not as much fun. It's not. Right. Well, speaking of your voice, another segue, we're about to play another game. We're about to play a game. Oh, right. The game. The game. <laughs> not just any game, the, the game. The game. Uh, it's called uh, Time for Two. And it is two minutes on the clock, random icebreaker questions, no right, no wrong. Uh, we're just curious to see uh, what your opinion is. Uh-oh, getting into trouble here. Okay. Oh, you'll be fine. All righty. Are you ready? I'm, I'm born ready. Okay. Very good. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Favorite president? Roosevelt, Franklin, D. Uh, favorite kind of bean? Uh, goat eye bean from uh, uh, the, the place, the, the hipster bean place. Nice. Uh, how much malarkey is a bunch of malarkey? Uh, a lot of malarkey. Microwaves, <laughs> good or evil? What, what? Microwaves, good or evil? Uh, evil. <laughs> Toaster oven or a regular oven? Regular. Oh, favorite Richard? Um... Uh, little. <laughs> uh, what weather would your parents be? Um, sky. Are babysitters good or evil? Good. Uh, mostly good, unless you watch 2020 and then you get some bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite West Wing character? Never saw it. Oh. Alex Trebek was the greatest game show host of all time. Ah, false. It was a question. It was a statement. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, who's the worst? Um, fascists and racists. Yes. Uh, whose line is it anyway? Um, Kamala Harris. It's her line. <laughs> uh, who's the boss? Uh, uh, Tony Danza. I wish I had a better answer for that. <laughs> Favorite kind of tea. Um. Meal. I wish I was more clever at this. <laughs> Keep going. I want more. Favorite kind of noodle? Uh, uh, noodle. Uh, a, a role you wish you wish you've gotten. Oh God, Frankie Valley Jersey Boys. It's a long story. Favorite beetle? Ringo. 
And that's how we play time for two. Guys, I really shit the bed. You really served me up with some great ones and I just shit the bed. I'm so sorry. It's all right. I'm just you gonna... got really specific about your being. <laughs> Rancho Gordo. That's where they're from. Look, if they, first of all, Yahtzee. Second of all, I think, I think, I think the bean was the best answer of the game. So it's okay. Okay, And maybe the best answer we've gotten in a long time. Serenity. That's what I was thinking. I saw it, but I couldn't say it. My favorite, my favorite tea is serenity. That's, that's. Oh, I got you. I got you. You see what I'm saying? Parking serenity, the movie here. Where are we going? Yeah. Where where are we going? Yeah. Well, Matthew, before we go, we have one last question for you. Uh, and is, uh, are your parents proud of you? I think so, yes. I think so, too. Mr. Matthew Lee Erpa, thank you so much for joining us and having some time after your very, very, very long day to come on. Uh, we really appreciate it. It has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, man, a sincere pleasure. Thank you both so much. Well, if there's one thing that we learned today, it's that 98 Degrees and Matthew Lee Erbach both want you to stay true to your heart. Look at that. A math lesson and some personal guidance all in one bit. How could you ever ask for more, Matthew? Was it Sondheim? Did he say something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Our thanks to Matthew <laughs> for the time. Uh, I mean, he was in the writer's room for like eight hours before he came on. And yeah, I mean... Our thanks to him for still having all this energy for an hour discussion. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, honestly, I didn't want to stop talking. I was just like, can we please just, this could be a two-hour episode, right? Right. I'm looking at him like, go to bed. Uh, <laughs> as your ultimate name twin. Uh, speaking of naming twins, uh, we have two usernames that are alike. We have our Instagram, which is what? Parents Proud Podcast. And we also have our email, which is Parents Proud Podcast. At gmail.com. How about that? <laughs> That's incredible. And so if you want to check out our new episodes, check out our old episodes, catch up on things that you missed, those are the places to look. And if you want to send us questions, comments, uh, helpful you know, feedback on our voice placement, Whatever you want to do, that's the email to send it to. Oh, please. We love emails. Griffin would always brag, like, how many emails we get. They're all, like, ads. (laughs) I'm like, we need to get some emails. So that's where you come in, folks. What did you like? What did you not like? Let us know. We want to know. We want to know. And that is it for us for this week. Uh, Next week. Ooh, next week we have Jessica Lauren Fisher coming up. My stage mom. Stage mom. Oh, my mom. My real mom's be like, what? And uh, that is it for this week. I am Matthew Shoefrider. I am LJ Bullen. And we'll see you next time.